Welcome to Gun Show, from flintlock to full auto. And everything in between. Welcome to a show about guns without the politics and without the bravado. My name is Jason Dias. I am a U.S. Army and combat veteran. His name is Michael Helms, and he is a firearms historian. And I thought he would be the perfect person to ask a question I've always had, and that is, who invented the first functional gun? Jason, that's a great question. And I actually don't know if anybody can definitively define what was the first functional gun. I mean, certainly, you know, in China in the 10th and 11th century, we were seeing the development of gunpowder and using gunpowder to, to shoot projectiles. By the 14th, 15th century, we started to see the development of lockworks, so you didn't have to just hold a match to the end of the, of the cannon to ignite it. <laughs> Yeah, which was a good thing. So certainly by the 14th and 15th century, we probably see the we probably see the evolution of what is coming into something that we would recognize as a modern firearm. So I'm going to say probably in the 1400s or so, we're going to see the first kind of primitive musket that had some sort of lockwork that would allow for uh, remote firing. Remote just meaning that you didn't have to you know hold a match up to the uh, right. bridge to ignite the the powder charge. So, yeah, I mean, we've been been making guns for hundreds, many hundreds of years. Although I am Texan born and bred, my parents are from Fall River, Massachusetts in southern New England. Speaking of hundreds of years ago, in 1675, there was a brutal conflict called King Philip's War. It was basically between the second generations of, think of the Pilgrims or the Puritans, and the Wampanoag tribe. Native Americans had enough of these weird English people that were, you know, farming the land and everything, and a terribly costly conflict broke out. And I've always thought about that in the context of the flintlock rifle, since that was the primary weapon that was used by what was called at the time Englishmen, since the revolution doesn't occur for another hundred years. And I've always thought that those flintlock rifles were very inaccurate. I was always surprised that the colonists had been able to win the war using that type of weapon. But as Michael informed me, those flintlock rifles were actually very accurate. And since flintlock is in the title of the show, I wanted to know more. So, you know, that's an interesting question because the, the, the flintlock part of the gun is just, is just the, the, uh, the, the mechanism to ignite the powder. What really determines accuracy, and you, know, you would know this from your time in the military, is actually going to be the quality of the barrel, the quality of the rifling, the right. straightness. And some of the flintlocks were actually capable of remarkable accuracy, even even by I didn't know standards. that. I didn't yeah, know at that. a couple <laughs> at, at a couple hundred yards, some of those flintlocks could be incredibly uh, reliable and accurate for making shots. And you know, you were, you were talking about King Philip King Philip's War. If we if we sort of zoom ahead a hundred years into the Revolutionary War, one could argue that part of the reason that we won the Revolutionary War against the English was the use of smaller bore, very accurate flintlock rifles that allowed these, these basically snipers to start picking off the British. It was, it was sort of an unconventional guerrilla-style warfare, but without the accuracy of those weapons, they wouldn't have been able to do it. So some of them were actually capable of some very, very accurate shooting. The challenge then, of course, was, was making a barrel and boring it out, uh, rifling it, making it good and straight. And that was obviously a manufacturing challenge. But if that could be done, those weapons were capable of, of some pretty... Pretty remarkable accuracy, even by modern standards. 
Of course, the real problem was if you had seven or eight Wampanoag Indians, Native Americans charging at you with hatchets and knives, you've only got one shot, and those rifles took quite a while to reload. So that was the other problem. Yeah, that's the other side of the problem, and that was, that, I mean, that really, that was a problem until the mid-1800s when we, when we started to get into different loading technologies. But, so that had, that had been a problem with firearms since, you know, since the beginning of time. And on this podcast, we're going to talk about the tremendous history of firearms and how, in some cases, a single type of firearm changed the course of history. But I wanted to let everyone know how I met Michael. I was simply scrolling through LinkedIn one day, and I saw a picture of what looked like, in my opinion, since I didn't know, I thought it was like a little Derringer. It looked like a little handgun that fit in the palm of your hand. It was the Smith & Wesson Model 1. I was first surprised that LinkedIn even allowed you to post a picture of a gun, even a relatively older gun. And there's a picture of that gun in the episode description, since that's the one we're featuring on today's episode. And I contacted Michael and we talked about doing the podcast and he was very interested in this. But when I went back and looked at the Smith & Wesson Model 1, I thought something is missing. I could not see where the trigger was and so I asked Michael, "How did you fire this thing? Where is the trigger?" Yeah, so the Smith and Wesson Model One, uh, we, we sometimes call these guns spur triggers. The um, so the, the 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 frame where you would expect to see the trigger had had sort of a brass protrusion that kind of hung down, and the trigger was actually just a little piece of steel that sat in between that brass. It was like the it was like the trigger was almost kind of sandwiched in between the trigger guard. And, it, you know, admittedly, it wasn't much of a trigger guard because, uh, you know, you could have easily shot that if you were just trying to put it in your pocket. So it wasn't a trigger <laughs> guard dangerous. in the way that we think Ouch. of it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, definitely. Um, but it did have those brass pieces on the side, which I, I guess were meant to protect the trigger. I've, I've never actually found a really good justification for why they're there. I, I think in their mind, they probably thought that this was a way to make it a little bit safer. And I guess it was safer than just having a trigger spur hanging down with nothing else around it. But yeah, it, it was what we call a spur trigger. And that was, that was kind of a thing in the 1850s to about the maybe 1880s. And then we, we saw the development of the modern kind of bow trigger guard that went around the trigger the way we think of it now. And what was the caliber of this particular gun? So the original Smith & Wesson Model 1 was chambered in, I guess what we would now call 22 rimfire black powder. And That's what I thought, because as small as it was. Yeah. Yeah, the closest equivalent that we have in modern ammunition would be a 22 short. Dimensionally, a 22 short is is externally the same round as the old 22s uh, rimfire black powder. Of course, the difference is the old round was charged with black powder. It was a much much weaker charge than the modern 22 short. Now, I always tell people if you have a Smith and Wesson Model One, please don't put 22 shorts in it. Uh, there's a very good chance that you'll. <laughs> You'll split the cylinder in half. The cylinder right. walls on those were just paper thin. That was the evolution of the modern 22 rimfire round that we have now. And of course, the 22 long, the 22 long rifle, that was essentially just lengthening the cartridge, putting more powder in it, maybe a slightly heavier bullet. But that is, uh, that, that is one of the ancestors of, of the modern 22 long rifle round. Next, I wanted to know how lethal was this particular weapon and that particular round? Was this gun just pulled out when someone was cheating at cards? How was it applied given the time in which it was invented? And I found out some very interesting history about the gun. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think if you were shot with this gun, especially in the 1850s or the 1860s, 
you probably stood a better chance of dying from infection than you did from right. from the traumatic injuries of the bullet. It, it was a pretty feeble round. Mark Twain actually had a great quote about it, but Mark Twain kind of joked and, and mocked the Model 1 and made fun of it. And I mean, it really, it really was not a particularly effective round in the way that we think of it now. It, and really, it wasn't until the 22 long rifle when the 22 became a sort of a, a semi-effective hunting round. And I know a lot of people will jump on me for saying that, but because a lot of people don't consider 22 that effective as a, as a hunting round. But I think, I, I think to really understand the, that gun, you have to kind of step back into the arrow when it came out. Right. So the, the, model, the model one was brought out in 1857. And this was a time in American history when cities were just exploding. This was, uh, this was in the cradle of the Industrial Revolution in the country, you know, whether we're talking about textiles or whether we're talking about uh, manufacturing machines. You know, we had, um, we had cities growing really rapidly as the Industrial Revolution took root. Of course, we also had the transportation networks growing. Steamship lines were getting very mature. We had the development of the railroads, so people were able to move around a lot more. So living in a city uh, became a lot more uh, desirable in the 1850s and 60s than it was maybe 20 or 30 years before when we were a much more agrarian culture. Well, the problem with American cities at the time was they were extraordinarily dangerous places. We really didn't have the concept of a modern municipal police department uh, in the way that we right. think of it now. The, the biggest cities like New York did have a police department at the time, but they, they you know, again, the... The, the sort of police methodology that they used was much more immature. They didn't have the communications technology. So the bottom line was cities were much, much more dangerous places. And one of the, uh, one of the sort of genius of Smith and Wesson was that they recognized this. And when they developed the Model 1 as the first cart metallic cartridge load revolver, they made it actually a very small, compact, concealable weapon that would really appeal to people in cities. And that was, that was a huge burgeoning market uh, for, for gun makers in general. But Smith & Wesson, and I don't want to say that they were the first to make a small gun. There were definitely pocket pistols that came before them. But I think the combination of the Model 1 size, its ease of use, being chambered in a metallic cartridge round that could be reloaded, where you could reload the gun very easily, that made it very, very appealing for people living in cities who wanted a, a self-defense weapon. And let's face it, even uh, even just drawing the weapon on somebody, if you're in a if, if you're in a situation where you're you know somebody's coming stops at you, stops a lot of arguments, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. A lot of people are going to stop in their tracks right there before before the that feeble little bullet even has a chance to to go anywhere. And since I really couldn't tell by looking at the picture, I asked Michael, and how many rounds did the Model One chamber? Seven rounds, the Model 1. And if I wanted to protect myself as I walked home from the factory on a dark city street, how much would I have to pay for one of these? Yeah, in, 18, in 1850, let's say around 1858, 59, sort of in that time frame, the gun was probably going to be in the low teens for dollars, probably been maybe oh, wow. $13, $14. Yeah, now keep in mind, that's in, that's in 1858. That's a lot of money. And it's, oh, yeah, it's definitely a lot of money. The, the wholesale price on those guns was about $10, so you know, 10 plus whatever, whatever the markup would have been at the time. I mean, that was definitely a, a good bit of money at the time. That was not insubstantial. Uh, it was not unusual for, uh, for people to work and make, you know, a dollar a day or maybe even a little bit less than that. So that was, that, that was a decent chunk of a person's wages. 
You're listening to Gun Show, from flintlock to full auto. It's a gun show without the politics and the bravado with Jason Dyes and Michael Helms. After this quick break, we're going to talk about guns as an art form, our first gun, and is it possible to pick a favorite gun? All right, Michael, the first time I held a Benelli shotgun at the gun club here in New Braunfels, Texas, I knew I was holding not just a shotgun, but a work of art. Can guns be works of art? Absolutely. You know, there's a, there's a sort of maybe a joke among historians that if you want to if you want to judge a society uh, and, and their sort of technological advancement, look at their weapons development. And, you know, that, that's true from a, a purely technological perspective. But it, it's easy to understand if you, if, you think of it, if you think of the importance of weapons development that way, it's easy to understand why that would very quickly bridge into sort of the world of decorative arts. And, I, I mean, there's, you know, we, we could spend shows just talking about all the different ways well, that guns have been embellished over going the years. And that, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, and that goes back into the medieval yeah. era even, but whether it's engraving or uh, inlay or even even just the design of the gun itself, I mean, there's been some really amazing gun designs over the years that just, you know, stand out as classic. All sorts of different embellishments ha- have been done with guns over the, uh, over the years, and that's still done today. I mean, we still buy engraved guns with pearl grips or ivory grips or whatever, and, uh, you know, that, that's as much of a, a technological expression as it is an artistic expression. My favorite weapon of all time is the Colt Firearms M16A1 that I used when I was in the Army and in the war, Desert Storm, in 1991. And we'll talk about that on a future episode. My first gun technically was a Crossman 760 BB and pellet gun. And so I asked Michael, do you remember your first gun? And it can't be a BB gun. And do you remember the first real gun that you bought? And do you have a favorite firearm of all time? I found out that, one, we had something in common when it came to our first gun. And then I realized just how difficult it is to say, this is my favorite gun of all time. Yeah, so I, so I guess technically my first gun was a Crossman 760, but we already said that that doesn't count. <laughs> um, my, my first gun that I bought was actually a Smith & Wesson Model 60 revolver. It was a, it was a two-inch oh, wow. uh, barrel. It was a stainless steel snub-nosed revolver chambered in, uh, well, that was 357, but I, I typically shot 38 out of it. And, I, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I, I didn't really know what I was buying at the time. I mean, I, I knew that I was buying a revolver, and I knew it was a quality weapon. I didn't know that I would become so interested in Smith & Wesson later on. It was just... You know, it was a neat-looking revolver in the case, and I think I rented one at the range and tried it, and I liked it, and I, I bought it, and that that got me interested in Smith & Wesson right out of the gate, and I owned that revolver for many years and loved it. You know, picking a favorite gun is, is such a hard, um, it's it's such a a hard question. You might have yeah, to break it I down mean, between rifle and shotgun and, you know, uh, I, you know tactical I weapon have, or something I'm, like that. You know, when I go to the range these days, um, so often what I reach for is a 1911, and I, I know that's almost a bit of a trope ah. now in the gun world. Um, uh, well, I, I absolutely, I, I love the 1911. I just, and you know, it's not just that it's an accurate gun, which it is, and of course it has the trigger that, that kind of set the standard that all other triggers aspire to, but it, it just feels so good in the hand. It, it feels right. A, a good 1911, 
it's a solid metal gun. And I, I have nothing against polymer pistols. And there's actually some fascinating history behind those that we can talk about in a future episode. But there's just something right about the 1911 that just works for me. There, there's definitely some more historic arms that I would say probably fall in that favorite category. The Smith & Wesson Baby Russian would be one of them. The military and police revolver would be another one. And they're classics in their own right. But I think if I just had to pick a favorite right now, especially if it was something I was going to take to the range, I think it would be a 1911 in, in 9mm, 45, 38, uh, super. I'm, I'm not fussy about that. I, I love them all. And if you love talking about guns and firearms without the politics and the bravado, you're going to love this podcast. My name is Jason Dias. For Michael Helms, thank you so much for listening to Gun Show, from flintlock to full auto and everything in between. Until next episode, shoot safe, shoot straight, and we'll talk to you soon.